What is going on? Welcome to The Land Podcast. This is Jake Hofer, and this week we have Bill Winkie. So this is a, an episode that we've been pocketing here just for a little bit. We wanted people to get a little bit more excited about whitetail hunting for the year before we released it because it is a great conversation and you guys don't want to miss it. And so during spring, we were scouting for um, hopefully drawing a tag in Iowa this year, did some shed hunting and hit up the Iowa Deer Classic. And on the way back, we visited with Bill at his uh, office and we cover really kind of, I would say a lot of, a lot of things. His general story from start to finish and where he's at today. He bought a new farm. You get to hear about that. You get to hear about what he did when he sold his old farm and so much more. It's just a strong conversation. We talk about buying your first farm and some advice. So if you're 22, 25, 30, 35 years old, you're going to hear what he would do in order to get that first farm and just a just some great things in here. In addition, you get to hear about uh, Mark Jury and his play with uh, Bill Winkie. And so there's a quick little story in that. And then he talks about getting in the industry there at the end and then some general Q&A questions to close it out. So this episode is going to be on the Exodus podcast as well tomorrow. So if you listen to both of those shows, I'm sorry, you're going to, you know, really this conversation is so good, you could listen to it twice. And I, I don't, I'm not joking about that. I really do think there's some great information to this. So um, hope you guys really enjoy this. You get to hear Bill's entire story, how he started from zero acres to um, a giant farm in Iowa and what he's up to today. Also, real quick, in case you're new here, this is the first episode you have ever tuned into. The goal of this show is to help 100 people buy their first piece of dirt. That can mean a few different things. So if you're in the state of Illinois, I'm a licensed broker, and I'll be happy to help you in your endeavors. And number two is if you want to get connected with someone that I would personally do business with, if you're in an area that I know someone, I'll be happy to refer you uh, with confidence. And if this podcast in any way inspired you, informs you, helped you take action to buy your first piece of ground, I want to know. Send me an email, message me, whatever you want to do. I want to add you to the spreadsheet. We are cooking along. I'm so happy to see all the folks that are taking the point to reach out and say, hey, this helped me. Definitely adds purpose to what we're doing here. So just want to say thank you for that. And as always, I'm giving away a few Pat Porter books. Going to have a shipment coming out here very soon of free books. Pat was a past guest and he has one called how to make money by selling land. And it's a really good, no nonsense book. And I will ship it to you. Go over to the email newsletter, sign up for that. I'll send you a personal email and get that out to you. And last but not least, Exodus has a huge announcement coming super soon. As always, it's it's challenging to bring new products to light, but we are very close and you're going to want to sign up for the Exodus email newsletter at exodusoutdoorgear.com to check out a first edition, special edition, limited run of a product that I think you guys will really like if you enjoy chasing whitetails. So enough of all this. If you enjoy the episode, share it with a friend, leave a five-star review, and let's get right into it. Here we go. All right, we're live. We're at uh, your office here, Bill. (laughs) So awesome place. I assume you just finished this up here pretty recently. Yeah, I think it was January. Uh, so it's only been a couple of months from the air date here, but yeah, it took forever. You know, it's been a, a long journey. I think it took from the time we broke ground uh, until the building was done was about 14, 15 months. So it took a long time, but it's worth it. You know, you have those moments where you get mad through the process, but now I come out here and just relax and yeah, and just feel good. So yeah, it's, it was, it was a process. Yeah, this is like the we have the dream man cave. The dream. This is the dream office right I mean, here. It's a beautiful view. Oh my like gosh! Out the back, it's <laughs> all yeah, it's the windows. Amazing. Yeah. Especially. Are you a big window guy? Because your old house yeah. had all windows in the back. Mm-hmm. So it's about the view, you know. And even 
when we bought this house. The house was built in the 70s, and it had been remodeled a little bit, you know, so it was not a 1970s interior, but it was a 1970s exterior, and, and my wife wasn't really sold on a 1970s house, you know, because things have changed so much since then, you know, the, the way that houses are designed. But we bought it for the view, the neighborhood. You know, we looked at a lot of houses that were nicer from the standpoint of current design, and that's what she really wanted to, to get at first. And then I thought, well, you know, we don't have any really neighbors. We look out the window, and, you know, we can see for a mile, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, down the valley, and it's just, you know. So I'm, I'm about the view, yeah. Like, even if I'm picking a spot to camp, I want it to be a pretty spot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we've done, we've done a ton of homework, to be honest, for this uh, conversation here. And in the comments, you mentioned that you bought a farm finally. So I guess to catch mm-hmm. everyone up, you sold your original farm in 2020. Yep. Bought some commercial real estate. Yep. And then you just bought a different farm, at least to, you know, get back in the land game. Yeah. Did you sell your commercial real estate? No. And that's, you know, that chapter is yet to be written. You know, I'm really comfortable with recreational land because I understand the buyers, the sellers, you know, the structure of the property, what it needs to be, you know, what the neighborhood needs to be like, all that. But that, rec- that commercial real estate's got me nervous. You can do a 1031 tax exchange if you sell any kind of real estate into any other kind of real estate as long as it's held for investment. Yep. So when we sold that property in Southern Iowa, we were trying to figure out, or I was trying to figure out how to replace it with something closer to my parents. And when I couldn't find anything, as we started closing in on that period of time when you had to identify the replacement property for the tax exchange, then I switched over to commercial real estate. And, uh, you know... There's people who do that for a lifetime, and I'm sure they still make the odd mistake. You know, you got just jumping into the pool with all of his cash saying, hey, you yeah. know, I hope this works. <laughs> uh, so, so, no, the whole intent there is to use the income from the commercial real estate to pay for the loans on any recreational land that I buy. That allowed me to move it someplace without paying the capital gains and yet still have generated enough income that potentially I can borrow against that. Sure. And, and that's what I've been doing, so... So commercial real estate's a pretty broad term. So Yeah. What, oh, uh, like I've got a an office building, a small office building. I've got a couple of retail locations and uh one building that the state of Iowa is in, which is that one should be solid. You know, one of them is a Dollar Tree store and that should be pretty solid. You don't really know about office buildings though, and even retail locations other than like the dollar, you know, the discount mm-hmm. ones because you know how the future is with all the stuff online and and remote you know, meetings and stuff like that makes me nervous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you, so if you did that in 2020, that was post COVID or like in the yeah, middle of it, right in the middle of it. Yeah. So pretty good I, values. Yeah. So recreational land has gone up. Agricultural yeah. land has gone up residential. Yeah. The commercial dip during that time when you're buying or was this pretty steady? Uh, I think it dipped a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Because everybody got nervous about the future of it, you know, <clears> and even some of the realtors that I talked about that were specialists in it, they said, you know, we don't really know what to do because even the multifamily, you know, like apartment buildings, they said that, you know, the way that COVID is set up now, people don't have to pay their rent. You know, what does that mean for the person that owns that building, you know? So the one guy said multi-use was the only one he was comfortable with, which is like flex manufacturing. So let's say an electrician might have a bay, and then a guy that manufactures T-shirts or something might have a bay. And it's like a big warehouse that's broken up into a lot of little bays that have access from, you know, shipping and stuff like that. And he felt like that was the only safe thing, but of course that's not what I bought, you know? <laughs> so who knows? I don't, it's, but no, it was, it, there was a lot of caution among those guys then, but it was either that or pay the capital gains and sit on the cash. And then, you know, what's happened to cash, 
you know, that, that's not a good place to be either. So, I mean, like I said, it remains to be seen whether I did good there or not. Time will tell. Yeah. Interesting. I guess the other thing, so you did buy that other farm. So share what you're willing or wanting to share on that. I, I know the market has changed drastically in the last two years, and I assume it seemed like you weren't shopping there for a while, or did it just take that long to find something yeah. to finally, no, you it, know, checked off the boxes? It took that long. It took that long to find something for sale. Sure. Let, let alone the boxes. Yeah, it's because, you know, I was wanting to buy near my mom and dad, near my folks where I grew up. And, you know, we really didn't have to sell the farm that we had down in Southern Iowa. You know, financially, I think we could have swung, you know, everything we wanted to do, you know, moving where we're at now and getting closer to the parents and so forth or getting, we wouldn't have had to sell it. But I knew that if I had kept that farm, you know, all my spare time would have been going in that direction, you know, which is about two hours south of where we live now. And, it didn't make any sense to go two hours that direction when I could go two hours the other direction and see my mom and dad all the time. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're getting some age and, you know, I would have missed something, I think, if I would have just said, I'm going to keep this farm and, you know, keep going south. So that's kind of what the, what forced that decision, let's say, or, or at least motivated that decision. So I was never out of the, I was always looking, but I was out of the market at the wrong time, you know, because during that time I sold now cheap. Yeah. And I was like, looking back on it, I was like, oh man. You know, I left a lot of money on the table. That was one of the questions I had was, do you regret selling it? Because no one can predict the future. And I don't think anyone would have predicted this. No, and I don't know if I regret it or not. You know, I've seen my parents a lot. Like my dad said one time, it made me feel bad. He said, I've seen you more in the last two months than I've seen you in the last 10 years. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sit good. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I think from that standpoint, you know, it was, it needed to be done. I wish that I could have got, I just stayed in the market because when I was out, recreational land took like a 30 plus percent jump. You know, so what I sold bought me 30 whatever percent less, you know. So we'll see if that, you know, move to commercial real estate using that to fund, you know, the recreational land, you know, that might still work, you know, because you can still get commercial real estate where your rate of return is, you know, the high single digits, low double digits, nine, 10, 11 percent return, you know, if you're including cash flow. Yeah. So that's your net. You know, so you're never going to come close to that with any kind of farmland investment. Assuming that works, you know, then I should have enough income coming in to buy, you know, some nice stuff, you know, eventually up where mom and dad are at. But it's more about just something being for sale. You know, it was, nothing was on the market, you know, and I knew a lot of people, fourth generation on both sides of my family. So I called a lot of people, knocked on a lot of doors and everybody was, no, you know, we're not really, you know, maybe someday, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it wasn't an easy process of trying to buy you know a couple times I thought I had something bought and then it would you know fall through but so yeah that was really what motivated the piece that I ended up buying and it's nice I like it you know but it's it wasn't like oh this is a great white chill neighborhood this has got this and this yeah. you know it's this is for sale <laughs> <laughs> that was the box that it checked <laughs> yeah. for sale uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah it's uh that, that's been tough and I think all over the country it's probably like that a little bit in the area where I'm trying to buy it's even worse you know it's not an area where very many people sell yeah it's interesting how different parts of the country, you can look at the land sales bulletin and look at that county. There was only five transactions the entire year. And then you go to a different part and it's, there was 40 or 50. Yeah. And it's just crazy how different pockets does change more hands. Yeah. And and even down there where I sold, if I'd have stayed really aggressive there and had enough money to work with, you know, I could have blocked up 2,500 acres in pretty much one chunk. That's how much of that changed hands in the 18 years that we lived there. It wouldn't have been 100% contiguous, but very close. It would have been like five miles long. That, that was crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, so that was a lot of, I figured it was going to be like that everywhere, you know, because I got conditioned to the, the land changing hands, but it wasn't like that in the place where I was trying to buy. So I kind of got caught by surprise. Do you have anything here, Chad? No, I guess we could circle back to how you got 
basically how you got started. I think that's the really interesting thing is looking back at, you know, your story, not starting with nothing, but starting with very little and just finding a way to constantly make things move and, and get things bought and make deals and yeah. like rolling that over to the next piece. There's not a lot of people that have the, I guess the mindset or willingness, yeah. ambition is the right word to make a lot of that happen. And I think that, you know, opportunity also. And, uh, you know, I think that God also played a role in, in just saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to go along with your dream too here, you know, because too many pieces fell into place. It wasn't, you can call it luck or you can call it whatever, you know, but like even the guy that sold me the original 125 acres down there, he said, gosh, if I'd have thought this was possible, I never would have sold it. To, that, <laughs> to what you tied together. Yeah. <laughs> it just kept growing and growing, but there were some pieces in the air and, you know, a lot of balls in the air, you know, uh-huh. at one time and to have them all come back to rest in the right place, you know, when the deals went through was miraculous in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, it started with buying uh, part ownership of a large corporation, a subchapter S corporation. And we literally had, I think, $12,000 in the bank. And uh, we bought one fourteenth ownership in a property that owned like 3,600 acres and, and leased the neighboring like 400 and some. So it was like 4,000 acres in one block, uh-huh. you know, and I owned or we own, my wife and I, one 14th interest in that. You'd think that would cost a fortune. It didn't, though, back then. Yeah. Because land was in the, I mean, land that wasn't encumbered, you know, by a corporation like that was still in the 300s per acre, 300 mm-hmm. some, $350 an acre. So encumbered real estate like that, you know, it's people are like, well, it's not like buying those many acres. You're only buying like a part ownership of it. It's not the same. So, you know, you're buying in at roughly $300 an acre you know, into that, you know, so you take one 14th of that and, you know, it's not a huge chunk of money, but that got me into the game. It got me into Southern Iowa and uh, got me started with deer management. That was uh, 1995. I was pretty quickly the president of that corporation because we were actually living on the property, my wife and I. And, you know, so I was doing all the deer management, all the land management stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd get up at five in the morning and go up to my office. I was writing for magazines back then and I'd work until about noon or one o'clock and then I'd jump on a tractor until dark, you know, and come back and, you know, eat and go to bed and then get up and do it again, just like day after day, because there's so much work out there, 80 some food plots wow. on that piece. And they weren't all maxed out in great shape, you know, but even if you keep, you know, 60 of them, <laughs> yeah, still a lot in good of work. Standard, yeah. yeah. So that was my introduction to the interaction of how deer, you know, behave and how they you know, how they thrive, you know, what kind of habitat works, you know, what kind of habitat doesn't, you know, how do you create food plots in areas where the deer density is too high, you know, stuff like that, you know, and how do you get the deer density down in areas that are too high and, you know, all those dynamics. It was a really good classroom for that stuff. But anyway, that was just a, I'm sorry I took a long answer. On was, that, the, but was the president position a paid one? No, we, we stayed in the house for free. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We stayed in the house for free. So that was as, as good as it got. But no, there was... There was no paid anything down that place. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it tied in more ways, obviously got you in the land game, but beyond yeah. that was a gentleman named Jack Yeah, that played in later. Was Larry Kendall part of that corporation? No. He was not. Okay. No, he was just, a, and Larry came into the story a little bit later. You know, my wife is from Michigan and we'd met right after when I graduated from college and, and worked out in Michigan for four years, but we thought, let's, you know, the kids are, you know, we had one and we we're getting ready to have another one, you know, so maybe we need to be closer to grandma, you know, and her, her dad had already uh, passed away from a heart attack a few years earlier or, you know, roughly in that time frame. But anyway, we were going to get closer to her family. So we went to Michigan for three years and uh, we still owned that property in Southern Iowa. So that was during that period, you know, okay. we, the, of that subchapter. Then when we came back, you know, it was just too hard 
for us, you know, for me to travel and find places to hunt and have a young family and stuff, you know, it was more, you know, we decided that it made sense just to get back where I could hunt in my own backyard. Mm-hmm. So we were going to try to buy something as close to that corporation land as we could find. And there's a big, long story around this, and I'm going to have to skip that story, but it's actually cool how we ended up on the property that we did. I'll tell a really short part of it, but while we still lived in Southern Iowa, there was 900 and some acres that was that I got onto the market. You know, I called the people up and I thought, you know, I got like $12,000 in the bank, you know, or $10,000. Like, <laughs> these people own 900 acres, you know, so I called them and I said, hey, would you be interested in selling that 9,000 acres? And they're, or not 9,000, <laughs> 900. 900, let's go back, yeah. <laughs> 9,000. It could, might as well have been 9,000 <laughs> for what I could afford. You know, so they're like, oh, you know, maybe. So the next morning, a local realtor calls me and says, hey, are you interested in so such and such property? I'm like, yeah, I am. And I said, uh, what did they price it at? You know, because I knew it would cash flow at $375 per acre. I wouldn't uh-huh. have to put any money in. Okay. Because you know, the CRP income on it. So I just thought, maybe if I can get it cheap enough, you know, then I can make money on this. You know, I was like, how stupid. <laughs> I mean, I could have bought it. And I just sat there, you know, and waited and saw. So you were a tire it. kicker. I wasn't. I was going to buy it. Okay. And I had a timber guy come and look at it. And he said, yeah, there's enough money on here to make the down payment. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to, you know, borrow the money and, and you know, get you to Short that Short-term loan. Yeah. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm just going to let him soften up. Nobody's looking at it. I'd call the realtor every, you know, few weeks and say, hey, anybody interested? No, no offers or nobody's looking at it. And so then little by little, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to come back at him. Because I offered him like 325 an acre you uh-huh. know, to start, you know, and I thought, well, I'm going to make a little bit of money on this one. You know? <laughs> then like six months in you know, then a guy named Roger Rothar and you guys have probably heard yeah. of Roger mm-hmm. from Ohio. Yeah. Roger was looking for land in Southern Iowa and he jumped in there and this, Oh no, the local game warden who was a friend of mine told Roger that it was for sale because oh, the no. sign was sitting <laughs> on there and he didn't know that I was trying to buy it. You know. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, Roger ended up with it and, and there was some funny stuff that happened in the process of Roger buying it that I really still chuckle about, but because I'll tell it, it's funny, but the realtor came back to me and said, well, you know, Roger offered this amount and they're going to take it. If you'll go $25 an acre more, you know, they'll sell it to you because you were in there first. Yeah. And it was, now they're up in the $400 an acre range. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. No, I'm dang. But tell him, but tell Roger I'm going to, you know? <laughs> so, so then, of course, you know, it's people are like, oh no, he's going to. So then Roger had to bump his up. <laughs> so then, you know, even though I wasn't going to, he had to jump above me. So I, I figured it ended up costing him like another 50000 or something <laughs> to buy it. <laughs> but anyway, the... You know, the, the realtor thought that was funny too, but the poor Roger. Hopefully you at least got a dinner or something. Out of <laughs> no, that she sent me like a, yeah, like a gift certificate to a restaurant for 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, so I didn't get it, but Roger only took 700 and some acres of it. He didn't take the full 900. Mm-hmm. And, and during that process, that one corner of it, that was at 125 plus, I'd taken my wife there and we drove down this little field lane and I stopped on this hill overlooking this beautiful valley. And I said, man, this is where we could build a house, you know, if we get this bought. And she said, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, then we drove away. We didn't get it bought. I didn't realize Roger didn't buy that 125. We moved to Michigan, you know, do all that. We talked about, we moved back again and Larry Kendall had bought that 125 for nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, like 200 and some dollars an acre. He put a house there in the exact same spot where I said to Pam, you know, this would be a cool spot for a house. Larry was willing to sell it. So we drove down that drive. I said, you've got to be kidding me. You know, this is the exact spot that I was going to build a house if wow. we could have bought that, you know, original 900 acres. So we bought the house and the 125 from Larry. So that's what got us into that, that cedar sided house that, yeah. you know, they remember from, you know, through the years. So anyway, that's, that got us back and that got me into my own, you know, owning my own land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
So by now the land was a thousand dollars an acre, roughly. So ninety five to what year did it? So, so this we bought Larry's place in two thousand two. So we went okay. ninety five to ninety nine. We uh-huh. lived in in uh, the house on the uh, subchapter yep. S. Yep. Then we moved to Michigan for three years. Yep. Came back in two thousand two, and that was when we bought Kendall's house mm-hmm. and the one hundred twenty five acres. It became you know our center point. You know for the pieces that I added after that. Mm-hmm. So that's. You know, it's funny how that worked because I'm sure we wouldn't have built a house as nice as the one that Larry built. Sure. It worked <laughs> you know? out. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was like this, you know, great big giant windows, you know, looking down a big valley, you know, and it was uh, really nice. I can't imagine really a better dream property for a, you know, a white tail hunter in the Midwest, except mm-hmm. maybe if you're up on a bluff or something, you know, but just from the, you know, how beautiful that place was. And, mm-hmm. and the house was perfect too, because it was nice, but it wasn't really nice, you know, so if somebody came by, you didn't like stress out if they kept their shoes on and walked through the house, you know? So it was a perfect place for the kids, you know, to bring their friends over and run around and play, you know, Nerf gun wars and whatever, you know? And so everything about it was, you know, the ideal place for our stage uh, in our life at that point. You know, I got to driving around the neighborhood, of course, and even that 125 original was pretty good. It was only three quarters of a mile from that 3,000 some acre. You know, so that was a bonus rest. too. Yeah. So then all I had to do was jump in my car, run around and, or truck, you know, run around and I was hunting on the other property. So now I had the 125 where I could hunt and I had the the big piece, which, you know, they had a landowner tag in in Iowa that, you know, if you own land, you could shoot another buck, Mm -hmm. you know? So now I had a place where I could do that, you know, but I was surprised at how good the 125 was. And I started driving around the neighborhood, paying attention as, wow, there's a lot of really big deer out here. It was better than the the 3,000 acre track and it's had to do with deer densities and stuff like that you know we deer density in. was too high on the other one yeah it was like the center of a target the rings get you know sure better as you go out yeah and what happens is you know the if the target has too many center the target has too many deer then the bucks are going to fringe out into the rings my area had a lot of those really nice bucks that were fringing out driving around the neighborhood I was like oh man at one time I put a no, Larry Zock did it. He was he had bought some land a little ways down the road too. And the artist Larry Zock and I saw him parked. I'm like, no, Larry, be quiet. Don't let people see. You know, because there was a bean field and you could see down this ridge. There's just huge bucks out in there. And and he set his camera on a fence post and we hunkered down. And before the evening was over, and he had zoomed in on one big non-typical. It was in the 230 range. And, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time that the it got finished up, you know, by the time they'd run, you know, the, until you know the, the end of daylight, there was ten bucks in that frame that were 160 or bigger in that one frame, you know, that like where yeah. he was filming that, yeah. that big deer. So it was like, I got to buy this whole neighborhood somehow. <laughs> you know, like, How do I do this? You know? So I, I talked that guy into selling to me that owned that piece. So that was 275 acres. So now I'm up to 400 and I'm like, okay, I'm maxed out. And I've got like 400 really prime acres, you know? And I thought, I'm good, you know? But then I started driving around the neighborhood some more. I was like, boy, there's some really big deer over on this side too, you know? And so I, little by little, then my other neighbors would come to me and say, hey, you know, you know, we're thinking about selling. And of course, when it's not listed, you don't have any bargaining power. Uh-huh. Um, so I was paying a premium for the land. But even at that point, when you're paying a premium on land that's selling that cheap, you don't feel bad about it. How would you handle those conversations? Because it's not for sale. Right. And you don't want to, you tell me, how do you knock? A- yeah. Some people are offended by it. What are you going to do? It's asking for permission. Yeah. You know, there some people will say, get out of here, you know, but somebody's going to say, oh, you know, I really appreciate that. Yeah. If you want to come out and bail some hay for me or whatever, you know, so you're going to get different reactions from people, but it's not like you're coming there asking them for something. You're offering, offering. them money. Yeah. And, and it didn't happen immediately. 
you know, it happened over the process of a couple of years, you know, so it wasn't like from initial contact to follow. No, until when we moved there. Okay. Yeah. So it's different when you're coming in from the outside, knocking on doors. Sure. But when you're their neighbor, you're like, you're right down the road, their kids go to school with your kids. It's different, you know? So I think that made it a lot easier, you know, so I could just say, Hey, you know, I, you know, I would buy some more if you ever wanted to sell. You don't say, Will Will you sell? You never ask a a yes or no question. Uh You just throw it out there. And then they never say, oh, yeah, you know, I want to sell. They always say, oh, you know, I don't know. We we haven't really thought about it. Then you might even say, you know, this is about what land is selling for. This is what I bought your neighbor, you know, down the road. here. And then that kind of sets the tone. Then they start thinking, what could we do with that? You know, we could pay off some debt. You know, we Mm -hmm. could do whatever. So then that that process rolls around in their heads for a while. Then they come back and say, you know, we we would consider that, you know. So that was how it worked because I ended up with nine through that process, nine different transactions without a realtor involved in any of them. They were all just, you know, knocking on, not knocking on doors because now, like I said, we're living neighbors. So it came together in a pretty surprisingly efficient way. Yeah. Uh, But that's why I say that it it was more to it than just, you know, me having some knowledge. It was was a divine (laughs) process because it was pretty impressive the way it came together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did have to sell a lot of that subchapter S in order to afford Yep. The next piece. Which you couldn't 1031 out of. You had to pay the capital gains tax. That's that. right. And it had gone up a lot, obviously, because yeah. when we bought in, you know, it was like $300 an acre equivalent, you know, for that share. And by the yeah. time we sold out, it was in the 1500 an acre. So that, you know, that encumbered share, so to speak, was in the 1200 an acre range. You know, so, you know, we quadrupled basically our money on that piece. Yeah. So there was a fair amount of capital gains that we had to pay, but it still left us with enough that we could keep Cash moving. to go and roll into something yeah. else. Yeah. And, and the banks were good too. You know, I, I didn't borrow maybe as much as they would have lent me, but whenever I came up with something, they supported it. Sure. Um, so I wasn't paying cash for everything. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, there were other steps in there too that, you know, you mentioned the guy named Jack. He was one of the part owners of the subchapter S and, uh, you know, Jack was pretty well off. I liked Jack. We got along good. He was hard headed and that was good because, you know, the people who tell you what, what they think of you, uh-huh. you know, they're better than the ones who don't <laughs> you sure. know? Right. because they're, they don't all like you, but the ones who tell you that they don't, they're the ones that you can go, okay, well, I can get along with this guy. At least I know where I come up short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jack was one of those guys. He uh-huh. didn't mince words, you know, so yeah. we got along pretty good. And so he, he stepped in and loaned me enough to buy, I think it was the second piece because the one with the, the 230 and the, the 160s. Yeah. The two seven, right. yeah, the 275 acre piece. So he stepped yeah. in and, and financed that one for me. There's too many pieces to really go into the detail, but we were, yeah, you have a blog. Yeah. Chron- there's chronicles, all of it. Right. We were strung out too far Yeah, because you know, we still owned a house in Michigan that we were trying to sell. We owned yep. this, you know, 125 that we bought that on contract, you know, from Larry Kendall, you know, we couldn't even finance that. There was a lot of stuff that was held together by shoestrings, you know, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had to borrow the money from Jack and he was fine with it because I'm sure he was thinking, yeah, I'll, you know, I'm happy with this if Bill defaults, you know, because <laughs> it locked us up. Yeah. There's like all these big deer on <laughs> yeah. there, you know? Yeah. So, so that one, you know, eventually we were able to refinance that from Jack with the bank's money and then, you know, buy some more and little by little, yeah. you know, we could spend four hours talking about this, you know, the little mm-hmm. pieces and how we move stuff around and the shell games and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that keep the, keep it coming. But the rest of it was that too. Yeah. You know, yeah. There was nothing simple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause basically we started with nothing and ended up with a thousand acres, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was doing that on an outdoor riders income, you know, which isn't a big income, which we were talking about <laughs> this last night, trying to figure out going again, going through the blog and going through the, the, yeah. the chronicle of going from nothing to, you know, a thousand acres on a, because when you hear outdoor writer today, how many articles were you writing? Because it oh, had to gosh, be a bunch. Yeah, it was. And, and that was the heyday of magazines. Yeah. Was- so I was writing for 25 to 30 different magazines. Oh, wow. And, 
and I could write as many as I could produce. You know, it wasn't limited by how many I could sell. It was limited by how many I could produce. So my best year, I wrote over 300 articles. So that's, if you throw out Sundays and, and part of the hunting season, you're doing more than one a day, yeah. you know, and gosh, it was a grind. It was really not good, you know, because you're working 80 to 80 plus hours a week. And it's not like you can sit back and go, oh, you know, I've got a writer's block today. You don't have writer's block. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, know, it's, you grind. And I was doing a lot of photography back then too. So, mm-hmm. you know, the photography became something that, that, you know, people don't realize that I made quite a bit of money doing that, but I had a different way of doing it. It wasn't the normal to take the picture and then try to sell it to somebody. We contracted with the different manufacturers to create photos. A guy but named, their catalogs? Their... Yeah, no, for just to give to the media. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So to like, license it for magazines? Yeah. Okay. So it was, Brad Herndon was a, a really good photographer out of Southern Indiana at that time. And, and he and I partnered. And so he photographed in his area. I photographed in my area. And we combined the resources into one package. And then we would give those to, you know, webmasters and, you mm-hmm. know, magazine editors and stuff like that. And they would just use those with no photo credit. So it was just a resource that we created. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, the companies whose products were identifiable in those images were the ones who paid for it. So, you know, you got the Hoyts and the Nikons and the Realtrees and the, you know, you go through the list of all the companies. They were the ones that were paying Brad and I to create this resource. Mm -hmm. So then they're showing up in the magazines and of course people see the Hoyt bow or they see the, you know, Nikon binoculars and they're like, okay, you know, it gives product placement, you know, soft marketing. And it wasn't super expensive for those companies, but you combine them all together and it created a pretty nice little business for Brad and I. So that was helping out too, you know, with making the farm payments, but there was no like big income. (laughs) It was was more of a, I sure hope this works. Yeah, right. Were there ever times where you're just stressed to the max? I don't know how we're going to make it to next month. Oh, yeah. No, that was when I started Midwest Whitetail in 2008. Because we were at we were pretty deeply in debt then. And if you remember 2008, everything crashed. Yeah. You know, the economy crashed. Ma- major recession. You know, all the pages in magazines are based on the number of advertisers in there. So you know, they usually match up the magazines page for page. So if they sell a page of advertising, they'll buy a page of editorial. So if you see the thickness of the magazine... That just tells you how many ads are in there. Yeah. It's not how much editorial because that, the less ads, the thinner the magazine gets. Interesting. Because they just match them up. So now if everybody's pulling back and they're not buying ads from these magazines anymore, they're not buying editorial. So then magazines that were buying, like all the stuff I was writing, they're starting to pull back. Some of them are even going out of business. And the marketing departments of these various companies are starting to pull back. You know, it was a major recession. And, you know, I had to make my farm payment. So it was, there were some times in there that were, pretty sketchy. We made it, you know, but that was the hardest time, you know, because even during that time, I could see the writing on the wall with the magazines. They were starting to be very much less prolific, you know, a lot less magazines and and TV was replacing, you know, the magazine budget. So, you know, let's pick again, Hoyt, for example, they might say, you know, we're not going to buy as many pages in the magazines, but we're going to sponsor these three TV shows. So some of the money was pulling out of print and going into TV. Not much of it was going into the internet yet. And, you know, I felt like I've got to somehow get in front of this thing, you know, where I've got a product that people are going to want to, you know, favor long-term. And I knew we weren't going to do a TV show because we were too, way too green for that. You know, it's like we, we settled or I settled on the internet because I figured we can get away with murder here. You know I mean? We can just chop this stuff up. And as long Cut as we it. kill big deer, people are going to like us, you know? And so we came up with the idea, or I came up with the idea for Midwest Whitetail and, and that was during that recession. Mm-hmm. So my first year was 2008, which was the start of that recession. And oh, you know, I got just enough sponsors to break even. 
working so many hours. You know, now I'm trying to keep everything afloat with the writing and the photography. And you're flipping farms at the same time, too. Yeah, yeah. That was on the tail end of that farm flipping part, yeah. too. But, yeah, so there was a lot of stuff, a lot of balls in the air, like I said that earlier, that all had to land in the right place. And, yeah. And, and they all did. But, it, like I said, it was, there was some divine intervention in there because it sure could have came off the tracks pretty easy. Before yeah. we jump out of the land, the kind of the <laughs> land conversation, if you had to go back 30 years and start over as a, we'll say, a 25-year-old, you're in your late 20s, like, what, what, take your family and logistics out of it. Where would you go? <laughs> the, if I could go back to what it was like 30 years ago now, you know, I'm not going to say if somebody's 30 years old today, what should they do? Yeah. I'm going to say, what should I have done 30 years ago? I'd have bought everything I could find because you could pay for it with the timber on the land. And, and literally, think about that. $300 an acre for rough land. A lot of it even had farmland on it, you know, for 300 plus an acre. And, and so that's one walnut tree. You know, how much of Southern Iowa could you have bought? Everything that had a creek through it. <laughs> everything that was <laughs> for much. sale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, if it's one walnut tree, it's five oak trees or whatever. You sure. Know? I mean, it's like... An acre is the size of a football field, roughly. There's got to be two or three trees on there that you can sell. You know, you could own the whole. So it, half has of the that state. ship sailed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I tried to recreate that ship. That's why it was like that once in a lifetime chance, and I just I didn't know. Enough. Uh-huh. I didn't know enough. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Okay. Now, what if it's on a half scale? Now, what if you could buy it and people are way can- too. Back so, then, you could you could. You could buy stuff wholesale and sell it retail, you know, because yeah. there was all these little realtors out there running around that the market's more sophisticated. Yes, than what they are now. The buyers are way more sophisticated. The sellers yeah. are way more sophisticated. Yeah. The realtors, they know. See, there wasn't recreational land back then. Yeah. In 1995, there was just land, mm-hmm. and they didn't partition it out and say this has extra value because it's got some recreational quality to it. It's like who cares about that? You know, yeah. how many cows can I put on there? You know, yeah. it's four. It's not worth anything. You know. Yeah. So that was how the mindset was then. You know, and so that's changed. You know, now people are, are really identifying recreational land value. Like you look out the window here and you say, you know, what's the view worth, right? So somebody's going to say, oh, it's worth more than if it was, you know, whatever. Not, you know, so now that we start creating value around something that's not so simple to quantify, mm-hmm. you know, so recreational land, that can be whatever the guy's willing to pay for it. Yeah, yeah there's more emotion into it Yeah, recreational. It's w- whether you want it or not. Yeah. Whereas farmland really does come down to the underlying financial aspect of it so, you know how much is corn worth and how much are beans worth that's how much you know there's a formula to tell you with the csr value of the land you know what that land is worth because you know there's an x amount of return you need to make you know it's pretty low you know i've looked at farmland too it's just, you know you're not going to make a lot um, of a return but obviously it's a really safe return but it's not high because that's how much they've driven the price of the farmland up but it still has that underlying value to it that, that determines what it's worth whereas recreational land doesn't so back then, nobody cared about recreational land. Yeah, you know, it didn't register. Do you think there's a pocket in the country? Because the interesting thing about Iowa is obviously the deer drove up. Would you say that drove up the market the most? Was just the yeah, just deer. Yeah. So is there a different part of the country that maybe isn't as commercialized or as noticed right now that could see a similar run? Because quite frankly, it's to me is a little bit scary that deer are what could be the factor or the multiplier for that area and. If the deer herd goes down, then mm-hmm. in theory, the market would go down. So like, what about North Dakota pocket or South Dakota pocket where it's relatively unknown? And yeah. if you had a group to go in? Yeah, I think you can find those still in uh, some of those you know, Great Plains states. Sure. Um, I think that's more of a, uh, a hit, hidden 
gem, so to speak. You know, maybe even Kentucky, you talked, you know, Oklahoma when you guys first got here about some of the things you've seen there. Maybe Oklahoma's got some really good pockets too. You know, it's, I would say that Iowa is overbought from that standpoint, you know, because everybody thinks that they need to come here. It's because everybody's, you know, talks about it and, you know, myself included, but there's, there's a lot of other areas that you can have really good hunting. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? I think if you found the right neighborhood in almost any state, you could, you could be all right. And that's what we've seen in our travels too. Yeah. I guess it sounds a little discouraging, (laughs) like to jump, to be, you know, someone that's listening to this 2025 to, to do the same, you know, string. You have to start so much smaller. Sure. And it takes so much longer, longer. to compound. Yeah. And we didn't really get into the, the way that I accumulated the, the properties because I didn't just use my income and buy them. You know, what I was also doing was looking for that diamond in the rough that was the outside. Island, the yeah. 240 that we yeah. read about. Were you a partner with Larry Kendall in those two? Not in those two. They were, no. they were owned by me. But okay. we had a number of other ones that we used Larry's money mm-hmm. and, you know, my experience. But Larry, he picked it up really quick. He didn't really need me. I don't think he... At first, he probably thought he did. But as we went along, he's like, dang, why is Winky in on this? <laughs> but, so, you know, the way we set that up was I would find the properties and I would make the decisions for management and so forth. And we'd use Larry's money. And then, you know, we would split the profit on mm-hmm. the back end. You know, I didn't own any part of it. So any income that I got from that would have been just, you know, ordinary income. Because yeah. there wouldn't have been any capital gains since I wasn't on the deed. So it was more of, you know, an expensive consultant to help him. And we did some nice properties. We bought a lot of stuff. And Larry did okay on it. You know I mean, and I did, you know, pretty well too. We both did pretty well, but not near as well as if you find those really unique properties that are super undervalued and then you bring them up to value and then you own that whole thing and then you sell it and do the 1031 exchange mm-hmm. and move on. So that's where, but there's so few, you know, those cherries, you know, and you cast a wide net and maybe for every, you know, we had a, we had a number that we figured is like for every 40 or 50 properties that we considered, we might look at you know, one or two, and we would make offers on every single one, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we didn't always get accepted, you know, sure. because you'd make an offer that made sense to you. And so that was, you know, and maybe I'm wandering here where we're leaving the, the listener behind on some of this because I can see where, you know, that it might become confusing. But so there was a couple things going on at the same time, you know, I was doing, you know, the writing, the photography, this was before Midwest Whitetail. So then Larry and I were using his money, to buy recreational land and, and with the intent of reselling it. Mm-hmm. And then I was also using my own money to buy some with the intent of, of reselling. And some of that stuff that I owned, those two properties in particular were really cool properties. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I really liked them, you know, and, and, but it was an unsophisticated market, you know, like we talked about. And, and if you could see that they were undervalued, then you were, you know, one step ahead of the, you know, most of the other buyers on the market. And, mm-hmm. You know, just from the experience that I had with hunting and the little bit of time I'd spent, you know, on these properties dating back to 95, you know, I could recognize value maybe a little bit better than some of the other people that sure. were out there. So it was easier to, to see one that was undervalued, grab it, you know, do whatever you needed to do, bring it up to value and then sell it and then roll that money. So, that, excuse me. So that's how I was getting, you know, some of the money to come back into the, the stuff that I was buying closer to home. Mm-hmm. I never cashed out uh, of any of that. Even the stuff with Larry, you know, we found a way to, you know, to work that back into land that I bought closer to home. <laughs> this is another fun question here. So, you know, you talk about roughly, and, and this was even, I think, the, the interest rate that you had with Jack, 6% annual return or appreciation with recreational land. So obviously this past year or two, we've seen more than that. But if oh, you, yeah. you flatten it out, you spread it out over a long time. Yeah. Let's say with an average of $4,500 an acre in today's market across the Midwest, in 20 years, that puts that value at $14,432 yeah. an acre. 
Is that realistic? Because when you say it out loud, it seems crazy. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think it is, yeah. you know, because when we were buying it for 300 and something dollars an acre, did 4,000 seem realistic? No. Who would have thought yeah. it would ever yeah. get to 4,000, you know, in 25, 30 years, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's realistic. You know, I think that, that especially right now with this inflation, it's scary because, you know, people are dumping into the hard assets, you know, they're dumping into land and they're dumping into, you know, anything that's not paper, Yep. you know, because they're afraid that paper is not going to be worth anything. So, you know, if inflation holds on, you know, it's going to drive these prices and maybe it goes to, you know, whatever, another year of 20 plus percent, but then it has to flatten. Sure. You know, it can't, it's, it's not sustainable in my opinion to keep going up like that. Somewhere it's going to have to go down to nothing. You know, somewhere there has to be a, not a collapse. The stalemate for a while. Yeah. Somewhere, because yeah. it can't, it, there's just not that much money. We're going to yeah. soak up all this cash that got dumped into our economy and then we're just going to sit somehow. Yep. Whether that's driven by interest rates going up or whatever it might be, because, you know, otherwise it's going to be, you know, $50,000 an acre. You know, it, it's not going to be that. Nobody could buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So somewhere it has to settle back into that range. So then, what you're really trying to do is buy quality that's maybe undervalued. And I think that's was interesting reading through that was you guys bought into good neighborhoods and good properties mm-hmm. that you would want to keep yeah. regardless where I think some people think I'm going to buy Something a piece cheap. of crap yeah. ground that no one's – because then you're not going to be able to resell it because no, no one's going right. to want it. Because the same story that keeps you from wanting to buy it originally if you were going to keep it yourself yeah. is going to keep the next guy from wanting to buy it from you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one that Mark Drury told me and it was an eye-opener because Mark was doing this stuff way back in the day yeah. too. You know, and he was a kind of a master of it. And he knows a lot of stuff about a lot of things. He's a pretty sharp guy. But he told me that, and I'm like, you know, he said, we never buy anything that we didn't do all of the due diligence enough to say that I would keep this myself. Yeah. Um, he said, if I couldn't say that at the end of the, the process, then I wouldn't buy it. It's great advice. Yeah. Because that was a question I had, because I know on the 240, Mark Jury took the, the founder of PSC to go turkey mm-hmm. hunting on there. So yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, he was doing something very similar and he's sold and bought a lot of ground too. Yeah. So I didn't know if what that relationship was like and any lessons you may have learned or. Yeah, we compared notes a lot, but we never partnered on anything. You know, I just, I've always liked Mark. I think he's really sharp. And, you know, anytime I can pick his brain on, on stuff, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. And, and that was one that we talked about a lot was the land, mm-hmm. you know, so he would give me guidance and he would ask me what I was seeing, you know, and I didn't have as much experience as him, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I had some experience, you know, so. I think that's one thing maybe that people don't appreciate about Mark. And they think, oh, you know, he's killing all these big deer. Mark didn't grow up with big deer in his yard. He created that. Mm -hmm. You know, and he had the foresight and the vision to put all that stuff together at a time when everybody else was just, you know, on the sideline. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, that's, uh, that's just, you know, he was one of the early people that was really good at it. Who else was in your corner throughout this process or sources of information or was it just a little bit of the hard knocks as well? No, no. And, and it was hard knocks for sure. But I think just the love of land, mm-hmm. you know, and I grew up with the love of land, you know I mean? That's why I loved hunting was because you, you could go around the hillside and see what was around the next corner, you know, and trout fishing, you see what's in the next pool. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not the, the catching and the killing, it's the places that it takes you, you know? And so I think that was more of the, the really the heart of it for me was I had such a love of land that I could see those pieces and I was thinking about it all the time, you know, even as a kid growing up, it's like, man, sure would be fun to own, you know, something like this, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was always a vision out there. So I think I was creating the pieces in my own head, you know, for years and years before I ever got to the point where, you know, I could actually do it. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the other ones were some of the realtors 
that I made you know friends with, and and one in particular was a guy named Rich Baugh with White Shell Properties. So Rich came into Iowa about the time I was getting started, you know, with buying recreational land. Mm-hmm. And you know, Rich and I compared notes a lot through the years, and he learned a, a bunch. Rich was, you know, he didn't start out as a realtor; he was an engineer, and he became a realtor and became really good at it. We used Rich a lot, Larry and I did, because you know he had a, a track record. He had a list of, of potential buyers. He was a guy that you could go to with a farm for sale and it would be, you know, it'd move pretty quick. So, you know, you'd think we could have sold our own, you know, and we could have, but Rich could just do it quicker and, and more effective. For more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he could, he had his hand on the right people and he knew what people wanted. He knew what the value of properties were. So Rich went with me a lot when I looked at properties. Mm-hmm. Um, he became the buying agent for me and, you know, because he could tell me what that property was worth in today's market. So I could look at it and say, you know, this looks pretty good. You know, I like it. It sets up good for hunting. I like the neighborhood, you know, it's got some timber value on it. And I'd say, okay, Rich, what is it worth in today's market? And he'd give me a number and then I'd make an offer that was below that number mm-hmm. because we wanted to buy stuff that was undervalued and then bring it up to value. And if the market went up so much, the better. But mm-hmm. if it didn't go up, we wanted to make money anyway. Sure. So there's, you know, and again, we're, you know, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm taking advantage of anybody because we didn't. You know, these weren't farms that we went and knocked on doors. These were all listed farms. Yep. This is what they were listed at. So we weren't trying to steal land from people. You know, it was more, you know, you got this on the market for Fair market price. value. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And, and I would feel a little bit uncomfortable if I was trying to come up on some, you know, old lady or something and say, Hey, you know, I'll give you this for yeah. it. And then turn around and resell it. Yeah. You know, that wouldn't felt good. Send out a mailer. We'll buy land for cash with yeah. the number four. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important too. Cause I think there's this, there's some, there's absolutely some stigmas on quote unquote, I say flipping very loosely, Yeah, turning land into new ownership and, and polishing yeah. up. You're providing the service at the end of the day. Yeah. And but, you're not, you're not holding anybody's feet to the fire cause they're listed. Like, yes. We didn't have any leverage on these people. Yeah. Now, all we had was you know, the willingness to buy, they didn't have to sell to us. Yeah. yeah. One, one last question here before we transition a little bit is, so you're buying and selling these farms that you liked because that was part of the due diligence. Are there, do you regret selling some of those or do you, do you oh, wish you would have kept them? Yeah. There was, Cause you're trying to piece selling everything all of them. together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like we yeah. bought them because we loved them. You know, yeah. we, I loved land. Everything I bought, I loved. Yeah. They were all cool. Yeah. Um, and like even that 240 over there that I sold and I won't say specifically exactly where that was, but it was the coolest piece of land I ever owned. Really? You know, it was just an hour from our house, you know, it was, but I sold it with a 200 inch deer. I was going to say, yeah. There was a 200 inch deer on it. Yeah. When, when you I sold, sold it. it. And I never hunted that deer. And you know, the guy that bought it, that was part of the reason that he bought it was because sure. that deer was there, yeah. you know, yeah. but Rich sold that one. But the, he turned that 240 into over a thousand acres in that neighborhood wow. Um, wow. by just buying. It was a springboard. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, you know, he did, you know, he just put his time in, you know, it's like, but that was a, that's a great neighborhood. Now they kill really big deer there, you mm-hmm. know, some just world-class deer. And, and that one, you know, I, I won't say that it got away because, you know, I needed to sell it in order to buy something closer to home, but that was maybe the coolest farm I ever owned. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit for someone to just break down in the most simplest form to get into the land game. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned was basically having full two-time jobs because yep. people are saying, how are you doing this? Yep. Well, you can get a lot done when you have two full-time jobs. That's right. How important do you think that is to get going? It, I think you have to have the down payment, obviously. And then if you're lucky, you know, whatever you want to call it, you do well on the first one, then you can step forward, you mm-hmm. know, because the whole goal is 
to buy an undervalued property, bring it up to value one way or the other, and then sell it and then take that lump and buy the next undervalued piece, you know, and, and you can start to grow that lump. You can still do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't start with, you know, 200 acres or something, you know, yeah. I mean, whatever you can afford, you need to start there. Yeah. Uh, that's because if you don't, it's like saying, you know, like planting trees, it's like, oh, you know, it takes too long for trees to grow. Here you are 20 years later and they'd, you'd have 15, 20 foot tall trees there. If you just planted them back when you said it takes too long, yep. you're going to, you're going to get older, you know, so you might as well start. Yeah. Know? And, and that's where people get discouraged, I think, because they have to start small. Everything's relative. Yeah. You know, you got to start. <clears throat> See, and I think I'm 27. So yeah, how you say it was like the good old days then, because I feel like no matter how far you go back, it's always the good old days. Mm-hmm. And so although you could have done it at, you know, two or three times the speed of what yeah. we could do it. That's right. I think uh, when I'm your age, I'm going to be like, oh, man, oh, the we could the good old days. Yeah, it's going to take you four times what it could have done for me. Like yeah. it continues yeah. to compound right. in difficulty, yeah. but you, it's still easier than what it will be in the future. Yeah. And you need to do it regardless, you know, because, you know, it's not you're going to get older and you're going to say, you know, why didn't I just do this? What if or had I done this? Mm-hmm. You know, you guys got to have these regrets unless you actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. But the biggest thing I know there's uh, debt is a dirty word for a lot of people. And obviously you were to the the max of your comfort for a while. Yeah. How, how would you suggest someone to handle that to basically, is there a golden rule that you wish you could pass on? Like, yeah. well, don't exceed this. When, no, I think it's, you know, to each their own on that, because, you know, I feel like unless the whole economy collapses, there's not a whole lot of risk in this, mm-hmm. you know, because unless you paid too much because you bought your dream farm right sure. off the bat, yeah. you know, you probably are undervalued. You're probably yeah. under the market. Yeah. So you can probably get out of it if you have to, yeah. like you lose your job or something happens, you know, there's a, you know, some, something bad happens in your family, whatever. You're like, oh, I got to get out of this. It's not like you've borrowed money to buy stocks in the stock market. And went down 40, 50% down, or went right. to zero. Yeah. Yeah. So you're sitting there saying, okay, I bought this undervalued property and, and I know it's worth more than I paid for it. Worst case scenario, I just sell it, you know, pay off the debt and I walk away with my equity. Yeah. So it's not, it's not as risky as what it seems like. Sure. Because you're buying something in theory that you have, a, you know, you're maybe one of the smarter people in the deal. Because you, know, sure. you can see what this can be, mm-hmm. you know, you're seeing through where it is to where it can be, and you realize that you know there's not a lot of risk in this. Sure, yeah, and a lot of forced pre- opportunity for forced appreciation too, depending yeah. on what you purchase as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's that's my one thing is obviously you got to know what undervalued is, and that's for the, your area and yeah. yeah, yeah. So you got to be you got to have a lot of like local knowledge. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be really bad at trying to buy land someplace other than, you know, in Iowa, for example, mm-hmm. because I'm not going to know the neighborhoods. I'm not going to know what the history is for land prices. I'm not going to know the people. There's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't know that, you know, is going to make, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. Yeah. Whereas you stick with the stuff that you know. So when you say buy undervalued in your mind, is that 20%, 10%, 5% at, at market value? It was 25. And Larry and I were at 25. <laughs> oh my that's, gosh. that's what we were doing. But you can't do 25 anymore because like we said, the unsophisticated buyers, you know, yeah. or, or, or sellers yep. and unsophisticated buyers back in the day. But yeah, if you look at that magic formula, it's actually cool because <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm probably saying too much, but let's say you buy it for 25% under, yeah. you sell it for what it's worth and you put 25% down, yeah. you've doubled your money. When you cash sell on, it. yeah. Yeah, cash on cash. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you sell for 20% yeah. more than you now use. you, you yeah. tripled your money. Yeah. So it's, you could create a big jump because uh-huh. you're using the bank's money. You're not yeah. only doubling your money, you're doubling the bank's money too. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so the, you can make big jumps if you can find undervalued properties, but that was easier back then. Sure. You know, because like I said, there was a lot of like hometown realtors that, 
know, they put on the market for way too little. Yeah. You know, and it's, wow, this is worth 1500 an acre, and I see it listed here for eleven. so maybe we can get it bought for 1000 an acre. Yeah. And you go in there with a $1,000 an acre offer, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we were hoping that, you know. So then you're thinking, oh, this is worth, you know, you poor people, you know. <laughs> but it's not my job. It's listed. Yeah. Right? But that's not happening anymore. Sure. So one question I have with that is, basically, as you're doing that, when you did it, it was able to rapidly piece together your big farm mm-hmm. in a short amount of time. Yeah. Is there another strategy to go slower and just keep the, because you regret every property you sell. So is it another th- strategy just to go slow or do you think you have to flip them in order to continue going? You, you have, have to, to grow because, your income otherwise. Well, yeah, that's where the thing is like the longer you hold it, the, the closer you get, you converge on that 7% or yeah. whatever that long-term, you know, appreciation rate sure. is. But like we were turning them over, you know, reasonably quickly. Because that was during the craze. There's another sure. craze right now, but there's a yeah. bit of a craze back there in the early 2000s too. And, uh, you know, you'd buy it and then, you know, somebody would come along and say, oh, I, I really want that piece, you know. And sometimes we didn't even hardly have to market them. Then yeah. Somebody would say, you know, would you sell that? And, you know, you sell it for what it's worth, you know, after buying it for a little bit less than what it was worth. And now you made, you doubled your money. Yeah. So your rate of return was 100%. Yeah. Whereas the longer you hold it, it starts oh, converging. going down out. towards the 7%. Right, it starts converging sure. on 7%. Sure. Yeah. So th- that's the thing is, you know, you have to move through it fairly quickly okay. in order to really get there. Yeah, to yeah. have it compound quickly. Yeah. Power yeah. of compounding. You have to sell, you know, because if you weren't buying it for under the value, then you might as well hold it forever. You know, sure. Because you're, you're only going to be at 7% or whatever it is long term. Okay. But if you're buying it undervalued, in, in one way or another, then you should, you, you might as well gain that value quickly and move. Uh-huh. You know, unless you just you say, this is my dream farm. Then you got to look for other ones and move back to this one, you know? But yeah. The sooner you buy your dream farm, the, the sooner you put the brakes on the whole process. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you're not going to roll through to the next one then. Yeah. Yeah. So do you enjoy the process just, just as much as putting together the dream farm or was it too, str- or was it overly stressful? It's very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Because you still have to make those payments, yeah. you know, and, and putting the dream farm together was way more stressful than buying other properties because those you, you're like, oh, this is really cool, you know, because yeah. I know I made money as soon as I bought this, mm-hmm. you know, because you knew you bought it for under what it was truly worth. So you felt good about it. And every time you roll that back into your home neighborhood, you know, now you're a, you're a hostage of your own, your own process. So it's yeah. like you become your own comp. So like the neighbor next to you says, oh, I'm not going to sell it unless you pay me 1700 an acre. And you're like, dang, that's $300 over the market. But all right, you know, And I'll then do you it. are the new comp. That, you're the new comp. So yeah. now the next guy says, I'm not going to sell it for this, you know, because you just paid this. So why don't I get that plus, you know, so. I see. You, you end that's up, interesting. As soon as you start rolling it back, then yeah. you're paying fair market value or more. Yeah. You know, you're not finding those undervalued properties because you throw that big wide net out, you might cover half of the state yeah. and find five a year you know, undervalued properties, but then you're rolling it back into the stuff that's in your backyard and you're paying yeah. more than the value. How many properties did you and Larry, you know, buy and sell throughout that process? Cause I, I read somewhere it was about 2000 acres. No, it was probably more than that. I bet okay. you it was in the 5,000 acre range. Okay. Yep. And how, so I guess how many farms do you think that was and what was the span of years? Probably I'd say three years and not as many farms as what you might think. Cause we only bought big stuff. So, sure. you know, probably 10 farms. Did you split up those parcels at all ever? Mm-hmm. So you'd always no. keep them intact? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, some of them had timber value on them, mm-hmm. you know, so we would harvest the timber, you know, not in a way that really ruined the property, but you, you might take out, especially the walnut, you know, and that's, you know, I shouldn't say it because then everybody's going to think, oh, this is how we do this. And then you won't see any properties with any walnut trees on it anymore. But the, uh, nobody really cares if the walnut tree has gone, 
you know, if you cut down a bunch of oak trees and, and sure. even you look out the window here, you see all these big trees. Most of them are oak. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are oak. And it's, it wouldn't look nearly as good here if half or more of these big trees are gone. Yeah. You know, it just look bad, yeah. you know? So, but let's say you take out, you know, let's say maybe there's five walnut trees in there. You you're wouldn't even, even notice. notice. Yeah. No, you wouldn't notice. And they don't really provide much for wildlife anyhow. No. So and, you're not losing that. They don't even have big tops. You know, they even take the limbs, you know, if the tree's big enough, they take limb logs, you know, yep. so there's almost nothing left. The next guy comes along and looks at it and doesn't even notice that you took a tree out. Yeah. Whereas if you took that same value in, in oak trees, you'd have to take, you know, 10 times as many trees. Sure. Yeah. So we look for properties that had walnut uh, because you could do that in a really surgical and, and precision way and, and not scar up the land. Mm-hmm. Originally you said $15,000 was like the benchmark to get started. Obviously that number's increased. Yeah. In your mind, what is that new benchmark for someone to, to save up and have a goal to, to aim towards? Uh, I think you got to buy probably at least 20 acres to have something, you know, and it'd be mm-hmm. nice if you could start with 40 acres. So let's say if it's $4,000 an acre where you're at, then there's 160,000 and you got to have probably 25% down most places. So you're going to have 40 grand. Okay. Yeah. I think you probably need to, to have, to get to that point before you feel like you're really seriously doing this. Yeah. Um, then you have to have an income to support the debt on yeah. top of that. And that's where the, the work and extra jobs is, is comes into play, you know, cause you know, you don't want to take away from your families because your families are important too, you know? So it's nice if it's a self-employment job, you know, of job number two, you know, you don't want to be working at Wendy's on the side, you know, where you're gone, but let's say you're a electrician, you know, for your primary job, and then you can do, you know, some odd, you know, who knows, building or plumbing or something. There's something sure. else you can do, you know, on the side that, and of course, if you're an electrician, you can probably just work more hours, you know, <laughs> but, but you get the idea. Let's say you've got yeah. the Wendy's yeah. job and now you say, okay, I can learn how to have this trade yeah. in addition to that. And that trade is more of a self-employed thing where you can make an extra five, $10,000 a year, do it for four yeah. years. Yeah. Or really, you could do really well with those little trades too. Sure. That's where the money's at. Mm-hmm. You know, it just forces you out of your comfort zone because the land is the carrot. Yeah. Like I told my wife, I was like, we wouldn't have anything if I didn't have this passion for land. <laughs> you know, we'd be living in the mobile home somewhere. <laughs> that's the carrot. Yeah. You know, that's what got me out of bed yeah. was I wanted to buy more land. So I worked hard, did all these things, you know, and it's, like, it's because I had to have a carrot, you know. So the, the, you say, oh, I don't have the guts to be self-employed or do this. Do you want the land or don't you? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I do. Then, you know, get out of your comfort zone and, and go do it. So that's what it was for me. That was the carrot. You know? yeah. So it could be for other people too, you know, say, you know, I, I should be self-employed, but I'm afraid. Here's the carrot, uh-huh. you know. So that's, that'd be my advice is to find a trade, find something you can do, you know, where it doesn't take you away from your family, you know, at times when you really want to go to the, you know, the son's baseball game or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, and you can work around this other income, but you can have that to supplement your land buying. So that's, I guess, how I would recommend it to people is use your primary job for your family and use your secondary job for your land, mm-hmm. you know, your land acquisition and, and don't do it in such a way where you rob your family. Yeah. Cause otherwise, yeah, you feel bad about giving that advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So now we have a couple of other things here. We're, like I said, we segmented this up. So something that is, is very interesting is the DNA or spider web effect of Midwest whitetail mm-hmm. beyond you know, obviously THP is one that comes to mind for a lot of people. Yeah. Sam Soho, yeah. uh, we just recorded a white tail crypt with Brad Beaver yesterday. Like yeah. this, the and I just had a, a, another gentleman add me on LinkedIn. I looked to see what he did. I was like, oh, he was an intern at Midwest Whitetail. Mm-hmm. As, as someone that started that, how cool is it to see 
that kind of effect overall of it being an incubator. Yeah, I think that's probably the greatest legacy of Midwest Whitetail. And, you know, it changed the way people really thought about media, you know, because even what you guys are doing now, I'm not saying that it's a direct flow down because we'd have got to this point anyway. We got ahead of the curve on producing content that was closer to live. You know, and it took a while for everybody else to realize that was more interesting. You know, I mean, yeah. the TV model was, you know, have a hunting season, take six months, nine months, whatever, create the content and then air it. We thought, wouldn't it be more fun to see what happened yesterday than what happened last year? Yeah. And that became the style that, you know, most of the, the more popular stuff, you mm-hmm. know, uses now. So I think that was one legacy, but I think the bigger one was how many people went through there that ended up in the hunting industry and making a big impact. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but the beauty of it was I got that started, obviously early on, my first employees were interns, you know, it's yeah. not like I could afford, <laughs> I couldn't afford real employees. Yeah. So the whole intern process started because I couldn't afford to hire people, you know? So I started as an intern, camera yeah. started as an yeah. intern yeah. at Exodus. No, you got to get in somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause it's not like there's an obvious door into the hunting industry. No. And, and so the Drew Yarkoski was the first intern that I had. And he's now editing for Heartland Bowhunter, and he's got some other projects that he does, but he's really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys left me behind. You know, early on, I was doing all the editing for Midwest Whitetail for the first couple of years. And then we started, the interns started, you know, stepping up and doing more. And then, you know, hired a few full-time people. But most of the people I hired were the interns that went True. through. And then that became a, a well-known path, not only for the various people looking to hire somebody, they would say, you know, who do you have graduating, you know, but it was also for people who wanted to get into the industry, but they're still successful with it. 41 North who owns Midwest Whitetail yeah. now, they're still running that and, and they're doing well with it. It's a good program. Yeah. Uh, it's probably one of the best. It's probably one of the best in the whole hunting industry, you know, for getting quality people I would yeah, agree. into I would, yeah, it. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the success afterward is the alumni of that group yeah. right. speaks for itself. Yeah. It's right. crazy how many of them, like there's even one of them at the ATA, you know, one of the, the, People there that's, you know, important to the ATA came mm-hmm. through the Midwest Whitetail Internship, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Cabela's had a, a, several of them and different manufacturers, Yeti, the uh, Bear Archery. You go through the list, you know, Realtree. There were a lot of people that came through that ended up in these really cool jobs. Yeah. You know, not to mention some of them like the hunting public guys that did their own thing. Do you so still what think- ad- Go ahead. What advice would you have for someone either graduating high school, coming out of college, and everyone looks at the outdoor industry and they think, oh, I'm going to go hunt for a living. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to get to spend every day in the woods. We all know it's not like that, but what yeah. advice would you give uh, for someone looking to get started to pursue that dream? I think it's a tough one because there aren't that many paths, but there's a lot of, I shouldn't say that, there's probably different ways to get in. What I would say is do what you're best at. You know, if you're a machinist or you're really good with numbers, you know, be an accountant, be a financial, whatever, but do it for a company that's in the hunting industry, mm-hmm. you know, because not very many people end up on this side of it, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pretty small, if you look at how many people are in the hunting industry, you know, how many of them are actually doing what we're doing? It's a pretty small number, you know, so be realistic and say, okay, I need to get in the door through conventional methods. You know, I'm not going to show up, you know, other than maybe a Midwest Whitetail internship, you know, I'm not going to plunge in, you know, on this kind of job mm-hmm. you know, description, if you want to call it that. But so I just think that if you're good at something, just find jobs in the hunting industry. You know, you work for Remington, you work for, you know, Realtree, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then that, those doors will start to open from there. You know, Michael Waddell, he didn't come in to be a celebrity. 
you know, he came in to be a cameraman. Mm -hmm. You know, and little by little, they're going like, wow, Michael Waddell, he could be a celebrity. You know, let's push Michael in front of the camera. He didn't show up. You know, he, he just had a basic job. You know, he was a turkey caller and, you know. They a plumber, hired, right? HVAC, yeah. Yeah, yeah they hired him to, you know, run camera. Yeah. So that's how most people find a way in is through their traditional, normal skill set. And then they can branch once they get there. So were you a writer originally? <laughs> I was a reader. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I loved hunting magazines growing up. But no, I was a mechanical engineer, actually. Okay. Yeah. So this was a big... For me, it was a big out of your comfort zone thing, you know, and mm -hmm. I started writing for magazines. My story would probably take too long, too, you know, to unwind, like the land thing, you know, we yeah. could spend another hour talking about that. But, you know, it, it was, you know, again, it was just a gift from God to end up doing something that you really love. Yeah. You know? and, and I didn't mind engineering, you know, I was probably well suited to it. You're sitting inside, looking out the window, thinking, gosh, I'd way rather be on the other side of that window. Yeah. You know, and so then I thought before I, you know, raise a family and buy a house and all that stuff. I need to see if I can find a way to be on that side. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it was. You know, my wife and I, we were both working for the same company and, you know, we got married and everybody thought they're going to settle down and buy a house. Well, we both quit our jobs and started traveling, you know, <laughs> so we did just the opposite. It was like, you got to shatter that comfort zone mm -hmm. at a time when you don't have a lot of risk. And that's why I always tell the interns too, is like, man, don't settle now. Mm -hmm. You know, now is when you take all the risks. You got nothing to lose, right? You don't have a family. You don't have a house. You don't have, nobody cares if you fail. Yeah. I mean, your parents probably don't even care. They, they worry about you maybe, but mm -hmm. the best time for you to take risk is right now. Because as soon as you get like where you're paddling the canoe into, the, you know, into the river, you know, now you got some current, you know, and you're going to try to change canoes, you know, in the middle of the stream, something bad's going to happen. But, you know, you could get in whatever canoe you want to before you get into the river, mm -hmm. you know, so... That's, that's kind of what I tell people is, you know, start with the, the dream when you're young and, and don't settle or become comfortable until you've, you know, really pursued that because you'll never get a chance to do that again until you're, say, my age or something. You know, you know maybe I would have stayed in engineering, became some kind of an executive or something like that. The whole time dreaming about when I could finally retire, you know, and do what yeah. I love. Yeah. You know, so why not try to make that? your career that makes sense i don't know if you want to answer this but what is next i know everyone is highly <laughs> anticipating what that because there's clearly a demand for more bill winky content so i'll just leave it at that and you can answer yeah. however you want to i think that i'll start producing video content again yeah you know the biggest reluctance i have is now after two years of just hunting without a cameraman i've just become addicted to hunting without a cameraman yeah <laughs> so i've got to figure out how to balance that i'm, I'm trying to figure out can i produce something that people will like and that sponsors will get behind uh -huh. without me being in the tree with a bow in my hand. I think so. Yes. Then, then that's what I need to do because yeah. that's kind of what I've been playing around with is, you know, what is that magic formula? What is the content that I could produce that would be useful, that would be sustainable, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't want to be in that position again where, you know, you're just completely burned out all yeah. the time. So that's probably what I'll end up with. And, and I've done some consulting, you know, I've done a few jobs. That's pretty fun. I'll do a few more. Consulting know, like, like Properties? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on site. And, and, you know, there's other ways to do that too. You know, I think I could do a lot of like virtual consulting and have fun with that, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, I'll do some of that. That's not going to be my future, but the odd one here and there. And that, that has been fun because it gets me out there looking at whitetail land, you know, and, and uh, I love that. Of course, you know, we've talked about that. So, you know, again, it's the carrot, you know, because if I took the income from the commercial real estate and, and didn't buy any land, 
yeah, we could probably squeeze out, you know, the next until we die, you know, kind of <laughs> hope the pieces fall together. But now there's this care, you know, I'm going to start buying land again, you know, so I don't want to rely 100% on the income that, sure. that this commercial real estate can produce. So I've got to get back to work, you know. Mm-hmm. So once again, that's the carrot that gets me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, that's exciting. I think there's probably a lot of people that are highly anticipated are highly anticipating when that happens. We have a few questions that were sent in and some of them, have some crossovers. So we'll start with the first one. And you made mention about not hunting with the cameraman. And obviously I know you've talked about this on other podcasts. We'll do it briefly, but sleeping in the woods, yeah, killing big deer. Yeah. That, and, and, and I think in that podcast, especially on the Midwest whitetail one, that was an after the fact one, I talked about it and it's not something that you do just for the sake of doing it. Uh Uh, It's kind of cool, but it's something that you do because you have to. Sure. And 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 is that, that Solely from access because you're in yeah. bluff country where you're... Yeah, or any, anywhere. Let's say that you've got a farm that's strung out, you know, east-west. Yeah. And it's maybe a bunch of 40s stacked next to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you can't go to the back end of that. You're back 40. Yeah. You can't go there and back without bumping every deer in there. Yep. You know, so you have an option. Either don't hunt it or you don't leave. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> that's... Uh, <laughs> those are your options. And, and otherwise, you're going to bump too much, you know, going back and forth. Yeah. How cold were you in the morning? Because I just, I start my morning hunts out of a warm truck. Yeah. And I'm thinking, it's it, got to be a cold start. No, it's actually pretty, pretty warm in the bag. It's when you step out of the bag and you have to be warm in order to do it. Uh-huh. You know, because if you're freezing all night long and you get up in the morning, you're, first, gonna you're just going to say, I'm, I'm going yeah. to my truck. I don't yeah. care how many deer are up here. So you got to have a really good bag and you got to have a foam pad and you got to really do that almost like you're a winter camper. You know, then if it gets down into the 20s, it's no big deal. You know, I had a minus 40 bag, uh-huh. you know, and I had a nice foam pad that I, I laid on and, and I had that, that bivy sack was waterproof, you know, so there was no dew, you know, that got on me or anything like that. And if I needed to, I could pull my head inside the bivy sack. You know, I always kept it out because it just was more refreshing, you know, to have your mm-hmm. head out, but you got to wear a really nice warm stocking hat. Mm-hmm. You got to do all the stuff well, but you don't wear a bunch of clothes in there. That's the thing that, you know, and I had a fellow mention that to me. I thought that can't be right. And the more I, I, did it he was right you if you wear a bunch of clothes in there you're going to freeze mm-hmm. so you get down to you know worst case scenario just your you know your base layer mm-hmm. even if you can get down to you know just you know nothing just your undies you know mm-hmm. but then you get out of the the bag in the morning and it's 22 degrees and but you're warm though you know it doesn't feel that bad uh-huh. you know if you're freezing in there and you get out and it's 22 degrees oh yeah. that's not good uh-huh. Uh-huh. so anyway it wasn't as bad as people thought you know it was really that kind of fun you know the, sure the overnight part it was just so boring you know, so, so many hours you're just laying there and, and sometimes you can sleep, but can you sleep 13 hours? You know, it's no, you're going to probably <laughs> sleep nine, maybe. So there's four hours. Yeah, here. What are you going to do? Yeah. What did you do? <laughs> I'd stare at the stars, um, <laughs> you know, listen, it's fun yeah. to listen to stuff, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I got pretty good at sleeping a lot of hours though, too. I was getting 10, probably the most rested yeah. you've ever yeah. been in November. Yeah. 10 plus hours every <laughs> yeah. night, you know? So yeah, it was. So was that a con- consecutive night? type deal or was it sometimes but usually what i would do is i'd go one night and then bail at midday so i'd go in at midday sleep over hunt until noon and then bail or you know late morning whatever and then i'd maybe go to a different spot you know the next that next evening or i'd go to a ground blind and when i went to the ground blinds i slept in them too because it was just as bad of an Mm -hmm. access for those yep Uh, and once in a while you know i just go to mom and dad's you know and get something to eat and spend the night you know and Mm -hmm. you know so it wasn't it wasn't a grueling process you had to space it out yeah. you know? sure. because if you tried to stack, you know, stack a bunch of nights on top of each other, you know, especially 
because you, you don't want to carry a bunch of food, you know, and you don't want to drink a whole bunch of water because then you're up in the middle of the night peeing all the time, you know. It's like, man, it's 20 degrees out. I don't want to get out of this bag, you know. So there's a lot of stuff you do that doesn't make any sense. So you end up, you know, you get pretty run yeah. down. So the, anyway, you, you get the idea. It's not something you do day after day. You just do it. And then when the conditions are right, you do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And where are some places where people want to, because I know you've talked about it in more depth than other places. If someone wanted to go listen to all about this, where could they uh, go? I think probably the one where I talked about it the most was on the Midwest Whitetail podcast okay. that uh, they did back in mid-November. And I wrote about it on the BillWinky.com website. I think I did a two or three part series on the deer that I shot this past season. So there is something there too that, you know, if somebody wanted to look at it, they could find it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's, and again, it's, it's, everybody thought, oh, you're just doing, I even had people during the time saying, you're just doing this to get attention. You know, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you do it once and tell me if, you, if it's worth the attention. It's boring. <laughs> so we all know November 7th is your favorite day. Yeah. What's your favorite October day? Uh, 29th. Why is this? I've just been lucky on the 29th. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it really has any physiological you know, relationship to deer behavior. Yeah. The, if you catch a cold front the last week of October, it's going to be really good, mm-hmm. you know, whenever that is. So anything after the 25th, I feel like it's all good. Okay. You know, and, and it, it almost feels like it's better during that last week of October sometimes than it is that very first week of November. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and especially if you catch a cold front, gosh, it just... Because the bucks haven't really gone nuts yet. They're still kind of where, you know, trail camera pictures say they should be, but now they're just moving more. Mm-hmm. So they're more vulnerable, especially the bucks that you're trying to hunt are more vulnerable, I think, in late October to you because they're still right there. Would you say that's one of the best times to kill a mature buck then? Yeah. One that you want to kill? I think so. I think, you know, I think late October is the best time to kill a big whitetail that, that you've got a, a bead on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a good question sent in. Have you ever got bored hunting the same farm? So do you ever get bored hunting your dream farm? Yeah. You did? Yeah. And, and that was, that's interesting too, because I'm not saying that it becomes easy, but you know, I hunted that for 18 years, you know, and if you hunt it every single day for 18 years, you're going to know that, okay, this tree, you know, there's six spots on yeah. the whole farm. By the end, I almost never hunted any place, but let's say maybe a handful or, or more, really? maybe 10 max spots, because you knew that everything worked out well there. You know, if you put your time in, you know, the wind on this wind direction, you use this access route and you come in, you sit here. If you spend enough time there, you're going to kill whatever lives in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes almost, I won't say too easy, but it's, it's a formula. Um, you got it down, you know? Yeah. And I remember one time I was asking Don Kiske, you know, I, I mentioned to him, I said, gosh, you got to be one of the best deer hunters in the country with the track record you've had. He said, I'm the best deer hunter on the farms that I hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that makes sense. He said, I've gotten really good at hunting these farms. And that's the way it is. How long did it take you to get to that point yeah. where you really? I think good it's on ten plus farm. years. I really? really do. Yeah, that, just on the for, one for farm. me it was. Yeah. yeah, I think it took a while before I started to realize that, and I think it'd be less now. I think I could shorten that learning curve because I didn't realize that you don't have to take risk. I always felt you know that's risk reward. You know, every once in a while you got to go deep or do whatever. And you know, over time I came to the conclusion that you know the, the you don't have to be taking a lot of risk. You just hunt those spots that are no brainers. So you get really good at finding the no brainers and those are the spots that you hunt. Mm -hmm. And so that takes your whole farm, narrows it down to just a few spots, you know, and it's easier to see those spots now because I've, you know, I've done it enough. So I could probably get to that point sooner, but it took me probably 10 years on our farm to, Mm -hmm. to understand the whole process of, of finding stands where the access is so good 
and you know how you're set up in the tree itself, you're not going to get picked off, and you can just hunt those over and over. You could mm-hmm. hunt them 20 days in a row as long as the wind was the same, and you'd never see a drop off, you know, in the movement. So that I think is what opened that up. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. What about this? Is a question from James Dean. <laughs> he said, "What's the first thing you would do when setting up a new farm? So you purchase a new farm." But let's just say yeah. in theory, yeah. what's one of the first things are usually the lowest holes in the bucket to fix? It's, for me, it's the habitat because that takes the longest to change. Okay, You can change the food in no time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just plant a couple of food plots and one year it goes from nothing to abundance. But it takes a process of time to improve the habitat. So you also don't want a whole lot of deer because let's say you put oak trees in or you do some kind of, you know, put eat in them orchards, yeah. they eat them. Yeah. You know, so you're better off going in and saying, before I get a lot of deer sucked into this uh-huh. part, I'm going to do all my habitat work, get that out of the way. And then maybe I'll be careful about, you know, really pulling deer in mm-hmm. because if they come for the winter, they want to stay. And then the little oak tree shoots its little thing up and then they eat that down. And so that oak tree doesn't get anywhere. Yeah. It might be, you know, 10 years and it's only four foot tall and it should be, you know, 10 foot tall because yeah. they keep eating the top off. So the whole idea of, is, in my opinion, is get to the habitat right away. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that you know, comfortably established, then you can start thinking about pulling the deer or or raising the deer number. Mm -hmm. I'd rather have a property with almost no deer on it and buy that than buy a property that had a a bunch of deer Mm -hmm. Um, because you can always bring the deer. Sure. You know, you can't always create the habitat. That's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. So you necessarily wouldn't even put food on a farm for a couple of years. I mean, it's all relative if you have more than one spot to go. Yeah. I think now in hindsight, no, I'd be really slow. Yeah. You know, it's, if you have other options, then I would just wait and get the habitat stuff done. You know, and and uh, because you can always bring the deer, uh-huh. you know, it's a long-term thing. You know, if it's not your dream farm, if it's the one you're going to buy and resell right away, yeah, and you got to put the food in there because the next guy is going to go, oh, there's no deer trails here. I'm not going to buy this farm. Yeah, there's. Right? We didn't bump any deer. Yeah, when we walked it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, so so he doesn't recognize the next guy uh, of what it can be. He only recognizes yeah. what it is, and that's usually what has to happen. And when you create the value. You have to turn it from what it could be to what it, you know, where he sees it, yeah. the, the vision. He, he, most people maybe don't have that vision. They want to see it. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can say, okay, I've got a vision for this. You know, I know we're here, but we're going to be here. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to get there too quick. But if you're going to try to resell the farm, you know, then you probably need to get there really quick, you know, so the next guy sees that, mm-hmm. you know. And, but if I was owning it myself long-term, I would really focus on the habitat. Mm-hmm. So does that mean, obviously... Habitat's huge, but I know you're, you like to plant trees into a, like a fallow field, plant mm-hmm. trees. Yeah. Would you say that's one of the most, I guess, the best opportunities to improve in the habitat or is it cutting uh, or yeah. obviously it's dependent on the parcel? I think timber stand improvement is the quickest way because there's already stuff under, on the ground, you yeah. know, that's trying to grow. It's this tall. Yeah. Then you open the canopy and then it just flourishes, you know? Yeah. You just have to be careful what that is. You know, you don't want that to be invasive species Yep. because when you open it up, then the invasive species just go wild. Yep. You know, you want it to be the the preferred you know whatever you want to see next second generation and that's like even looking at land now when i look at land i'm looking at it from the standpoint not so much of you know how much habitat there is but what's on the ground you know is it do you have trouble with your audience no we're good i'm I'm just so i'm more worried about is there a bunch of invasives because if there's a bunch of invasives then i can't do hardly any habitat work Uh uh-huh because i can't open it up and it was overtake because all i'm going to get is the invasives and they're so hard to kill you know so I would almost shy away from a farm, even in a good neighborhood. If you look around and you think, gosh, there's a lot of invasives, you know, just struggling to stay alive under the canopy. And now I'm going to, but if it's too open. I don't want this. Yeah. So when I open it up, you know, I'm just going to have a bunch of invasives. So yeah. it's, 
you have to be careful too, you know, like I said, but that's the way you get habitat quick mm-hmm. is to open up the canopy. And if you want to get it slow and you're patient, would it be just planting trees yeah. of whatever variety you and want? Plus, you know, the, the other thing I always tell people is, you know, you, you bought every single acre, you know, that did the, the guy that you bought this from give you this piece for free. He's like, no, he didn't. And I said, well, what's it doing for you right now? It's not doing anything. You know, it doesn't feed deer. It doesn't, you know, deer can't live in it. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's just a wasted acre. You should go back to him and see if he'll give you your money back on this one, you know, because it's not doing you any good. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's not going to give me my money back. I said, well, you need to fix it, Change you know. It. Yeah. it needs to do one of those things. So, if it's open and fallow and it's not going to produce income or it's not going to produce deer food, then it should be habitat. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get the open ground to produce or to have a permanent habitat on it, you know, without a number of years, you know, of that stuff, you know, maturing and taking shape. So, you got to get to that right away. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So is there any more... Kind of I got one more. I got yeah. one more. From, yeah, I bet it. Cody. <laughs> so another li- listener Q&A question here, but can you pinpoint somewhere in your journey where things started to click and you started killing, you know, great bucks versus good bucks? Was yeah. there a moment in time that, that you can just say, this is what happened? Yeah, I think it has to do, there's a learning curve, but for me, it was when I got away from trying to read all the deer sign and, and make sense out of deer sign and just started focusing on spots where, you know, I knew I could get away with the access and it became a, a scouting backwards thing, you know, where you, you didn't scout thinking, oh, I got to find all the sign and try to figure out what the patterns of these deer are and put this picture together. It was all about how can I get in and out of this area and what's the best tree along that route that I can find. And then, so I worked access, as soon as I flipped it and started working access first, then my hunting got a lot better. And, and it was I think that's a temptation that most people have is they get lured by the sign and they just can't get mm-hmm. past it. And, and they'll figure out how to hunt something because there's a hot scrape. It's, oh, man, I need to be down in this little valley. And they go, yeah, I know that the wind is going to swirl. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> you know, so as soon as you start figuring that out and you start working backwards, then the deer don't know that they're being hunted. They move naturally and you can kill them. That's all there is to it. Yep. All right. What about uh, like annual information or annual data from, from trail cameras? Yeah, I think that, that was also probably a, a key point. Yep. Yeah. I, I should have said that too. I think that you know, when I started using trail cameras, then everything started to make sense. You know, not only where the bucks were, but how they lived, how they, what their behavior was. You know, some of them are homebodies, some of them are whatever. You know, you start finding this mm-hmm. individualized behavior of the different bucks. Whereas before that, you worked in this stereotypical, this is what whitetails do, you know, because, you know, that's what I read in the magazine. But that you wrote. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that they're all different. Yeah. You know, yeah. once they get past a certain age. So then you've got to have the trail cameras to figure out what that behavior of that deer is. So yeah, I know you guys come from the trail camera world and that's for sure one of the keys to uh changing the way that that you know I had my success really pivoted on that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be respectful of your time. So I think that's great. Really appreciate it. Covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. And uh, well, I hope it was useful. I know it's uh I got long-winded on some of that stuff, so hopefully that, you know, the, the listeners can forge their way through it. Yeah, we may split this up into a couple of different things, but I guess for, you know, anyone that wants to find you, if they haven't found you, where do you want to direct some traffic? And I need to, like I said, I need to really get serious about creating content, but, you know, I'm scratching the surface at billwinky.com. And Great then blog. The, yeah, then the Bill Winky YouTube channel has got a little bit of stuff on there. I need to start putting more on there. Mm-hmm. Those are the main spots for now. I do try to stay a little bit active on social media, but that's not really my thing. You know, it's more about creating content than I am about interacting. I, I don't mind helping people. And I like answering emails and helping people. The whole thing of here's what I'm doing today. You know, this is what my coffee flavor is. 
I'm not into that, you know, so I don't have a lot of good social media posts. This is not what I, you, know, you don't need to see what I, you know, how much I can bench press or, you know, what I put on my steak. Uh-huh. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to bore you with those kind of things, but so I'm not as good at social media as probably what I should be, but that's, you can hit me there a little bit, but I'm going to be hopefully more, you know, responsive or active on the platforms that, that uh, have the content themselves mm-hmm. long-term. Sure. Yeah. We'll link to those. And depending on when this goes live, be sure to check out the Whitetail Cribs. If it's not out already, it'll be probably November. Mm. Is there a Wednesday, is November 7th a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a Wednesday this year? Cause that's when these go that, live. Yeah. Cause that would be that a great would time be, to uh, do it. Let's look real quick. <laughs> um, we could do live release in the tree. The 11th yeah. was a Thursday yeah. last year. So it's uh November 9th or November 2nd. Okay. So yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. My pleasure. There you guys have it. Thank you so much to Bill for taking the time to record with us. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. His trophy room is going to be aired on Whitetail Cribs, our Exodus YouTube channel this November. So you're not going to want to miss that. You get to check out in a really impressive trophy room, as you would imagine. So if you guys enjoyed the conversation, please share it with someone that would as well or leave a five-star written review. Until next week, see ya.